book of Romans. We're on Romans chapter 10, and it's going to be really, really rich. How many of you are excited about it? Anybody read ahead? Did anybody read it? Read ahead? Read Romans 10? Watch it. Now, God's watching. Raise your hand if you did. All right. That's, that's good. We're going to go through Romans 10 tonight, and I want to pray with you. Father, thank you for blessing the Word of God. And Lord, we're so hungry. We're so thirsty. We long for you, Lord. We long for your fellowship. We long for your presence. We long to understand the ways of God. We long, Lord, to eat of your word. It's like honey to our soul. Thank you, Lord, for preserving the word through the ages, through the millennia. Thank you, Lord, that no matter how the devil has tried to destroy it, you preserved it. And tonight, Lord, we know that what we approach is the Word of God. Now, Lord, open our hearts to it, renew our minds with it, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Can you say with me, church, Lord, I'm hungry for you. I'm thirsty for you. Feed my soul tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise. You can be seated. Amen. Now, I told you we're in um, T-bone steak territory. When you're in Romans 9 through 11, I got a call on this on the radio tonight, um, a question about Romans 9. And so I was able to say, hey, I'm teaching Romans tonight. So let me just tell you what I think about Romans 9, because we were there last week. So um, it's good stuff, but it is deep. And we need understanding because there's a lot of misunderstanding about what is found in Romans 9, 10, and 11, particularly um, million-dollar theological words like predestination, amen? How about election, and not the kind, Republican and Democrat, I'm talking about theological kind of election. Uh, there's, there's some gold theological words in 9, 10, and 11. We're going to deal with some of them tonight. Now, everybody have your notes. Everybody have them. All right. Now, um, we're on the Word of Faith Brings Salvation, part 10. And let me uh, just begin. Last time in chapter 9, we saw that the Jews could not establish a legitimate claim on God's favor based on their national heritage. In other words, you're not born saved. Are you, are you there? Doesn't matter who your grandma was, who your daddy was. Uh, if your grandma or your, da your daddy walked with God uh, tight their whole life, you weren't born saved. You've got to be born again, right? So the Jews had the, the notion that because they were the descendants of Abraham in the natural, that they were right with God and that's all they needed, but they were wrong. Though they were the natural descendants of Abraham, they were not spiritual descendants based on what? Having placed Faith. Everybody say faith. Faith in Messiah Jesus. Paul's mantra was you are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anybody can boast about it. All right? But you are saved by grace through faith. Now, the Jewish history demonstrated that God carries out his purposes sovereignly with a freedom not limited by human notions of fairness or what man thinks ought to be. 
Everybody say God can do what he wants. He's sovereign. He's the boss, applesauce. Amen? All right. Paul showed that the Jews were responsible for their own rejection. They rejected Messiah. Now, we also saw another apparent unfairness regarding Israel and then offered an explanation. The Gentiles who had not pursued righteousness by obeying the law, as had the Jews, because the Gentiles were not part of God's covenant with Abraham. It was Abraham's descendants. So the Gentiles, and that's most of us here, probably all of us here, we were on the outs. We were not a part of the original covenant. It was immediately applicable to the Jews, okay? So the Gentiles who had not pursued righteousness through the law, like the Jews did, had attained to righteousness by how? Faith. Israel did not understand that God makes people right with him through faith, not by works. And that's what they were stumbling over. Um, They thought, well, if we obey the law, keep the law of Moses, then we're good with God. The only problem is you can't keep the law perfectly. And you've got to keep it perfectly if you're going to go to heaven. And they learned real quick, none of us can keep this law perfectly. All right, so they all failed. And so they never did attain to righteousness by works. But here comes the Gentiles. They listened to the gospel. They put faith in Christ and believed. And those that were not recipients of the original covenant got saved while the Jews remained lost. Now, in Romans 10, we will see that if a Jew today wants to come into God's favor, he's got to come by way of Calvary as a lost sinner and accept his Messiah as Savior and Lord. Amen? Now, that's the theme of Romans 10. Paul begins chapter 10 with the same burden found at the beginning of chapter 9. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Do you remember last week we saw Paul saying, I would go to hell. I would go to hell if my going to hell would save the Jewish people. And I told you last week, I couldn't do that. Could you do that? Unless there was a time limit. I might go for a month for you, but maybe not. All right, I might go for a while. If it's one of my kids, I might go for for a while, but forever? But Paul said, the Holy Spirit bears me witness that I would go to hell forever if they could be saved. And that's a love we can't comprehend. We cannot wrap our minds around that level of agape love. It's supernatural. So Here's Paul starting out chapter 10, same thing, my heart's desire. I can't get away from it. I want to see the Israelites saved. Now, the use of the term brothers softens what's already been said and what will follow because Paul does not water down the truth one iota. Look what he says in verses 1 through 4. For I can testify about them, that is the Jews. They're zealous for God, yep, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and they sought to establish their own by keeping the law, they did not submit to God's righteousness, which can only be attained by faith. Verse four, 
Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who does what? Believes. All right? Now, he's going to tell us, he's going to give two reasons why the Jew is lost. Reasons that also apply to all of us. Anybody in here that doesn't know Jesus, of course, anybody came out on a Wednesday night with thunder rolling and COVID out there again, you're, you're likely saved. All right? But just in case, and somebody's watching or listening by radio, um, first, the Jew is lost because of misguided religious exercise. Notice this. They got a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. It's, it is zeal without knowledge, which doesn't do you much good. Zeal needs to track with knowledge so that you're zealous about the right thing. A zeal for God is great as long as it's rightly directed, but it's a tragic thing if it takes the person down the wrong road. Because there's people zealous about Buddhism. There's people zealous about Islam. There's people zealous about a lot of things, but it's not according to knowledge. Because the only thing worth being zealous for is Christ. Come on, everybody. And, and boy, what a great zeal that is. The zeal for your house, said Jesus, has eaten me up. Zeal with knowledge is what you want. Okay. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, if you board the wrong train, it's no use running along the corridor in the opposite direction. <laughs> right? If you're, going, if you're on the wrong train, you're on the wrong train. Islam is the wrong train. Buddhism is the wrong train. Confucius is the wrong train. Uh, good works is the wrong train. The only right train is salvation by grace through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? So if you board the train of good works, no matter what you do within it, you're still going the wrong way. The only way to get on the right track is to disembark and board the train of grace. Now, Paul finally reached the day when he realized that all of his supposed religious assets were actually liabilities, and nobody had religious assets like Paul. Trained under Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of his day, Saul, before he was Paul, was a brilliant, dedicated, zealous Pharisee. Killing Christians, imprisoning them, tracking them, stalking them, hunting them, thinking he was doing God service. And, and he, was, he was learned beyond his peers. And yet he says, you know what? They were liabilities to me. All that was liabilities to me. All my cred, all my religious cred was a liability to me. All my good works were equivalent to cow manure. That's what he calls it. King James, you got a King James, KJV? Calls it dung Okay, He disembarked the train of good works and he boarded the train of grace. Now the Jew was lost not only because of his misguided religious exercise, you can't be saved by your works, but also because of his misguided religious enterprise. Since they did not know, verse 3 here, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. The great enterprise of the Jew was to build for himself an edifice of righteousness in his own strength based on the Ten Commandments of Mount Sinai. 
which was utterly impossible. I love this next quote. Matter of fact, I put this in brackets and I wrote next to it. Really good quote. Righteousness is not to be found at Mount Sinai, but at Mount Calvary. It lies not in the acceptance of a precept, but of a person. Not by serving commandments, but by serving Christ. You can mark that in yellow, orange, blue, pink, but you ought to mark it in something. Because that's a great quote right there. Amen? Verse 4, Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everybody who believes. Amen. Now, Paul lays out for the Jew and all people everywhere how Christ is accepted and true salvation is attained. There is something that precedes an acceptance of Christ and something that follows it. I got a, I, I've been doing to every man an answer every night this week, and I'll be doing it also tomorrow night and Friday night. I, I've done solo last night and tonight. Now, last night I was able to lead somebody to Christ on the air live. And he called and he said, how can I know that I'm saved? How can I know that I'm saved? And a guy tonight called and said, I'm a new believer, but I've committed crimes. What do I do about my crimes? Because they're after me. I hear what you're thinking. I'm so glad I'm not on the air answering those. Better you than me. But... Let me answer real quickly. We're about to answer. How do you know you're saved? Because I told this person last night, I said, Christianity is not a hope so, maybe so, perhaps so faith. It's a no-so faith. Everybody say no-so. Can you know-so? Yes. That we may, John wrote in 1 John, that you may know that you have eternal life. So we're going to find out, how do you know you're saved? The guy last night said, I just don't feel saved. I said, that's okay. Feelings come and go. Salvation is based on a fact, not your feelings. All right, let's go. An acceptance of Christ is preceded by a fair consideration of him, and it's followed by a frank confession of him. Now, before doing so, Paul takes one last look at Sinai and considers the problem inherent in seeking righteousness by the law. Verse 5, he says, For Moses does in this way the righteousness of that is by the law. If you're going to get righteous by the law, here's how you got to do it. These things will live by them. Now, the quotation is from Leviticus 18, verse 5. And it points out that in order to be saved by the law, a person must live according to all the precepts of the law without violating even one of them. Because what did the Apostle James come along and tell us in the book of James? He said, if you break one, you've broken them all. Try it sometime. Try it this week. Try it for a day, not breaking even one. All right? James says, all right, you do great with nine of them, but if you break one of them, you broke that one, and you broke all the others because you broke that one. So it's hopeless without faith in Jesus Christ, right? So should a person be able to do this? He would have earned his title to heaven, but you can't do it. But the big pink elephant in the room for the Jew was nobody could live such a life, and they knew it. Do this and you shall live is cold comfort for the person who realizes his total inability to live according to the divine decree. 
can't do it. Paul's message is that it is not the law one must appeal to for righteousness. It's the Lord. It's not Moses. It's Christ, the very one they had rejected. Wow. So Paul then tells us how to do all this. And he responded to the Jew. He's telling the Jew. And he's telling us as well. Verses 6 and 7. But the righteousness that is by faith has this testimony. Don't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, who will bring Christ down? Verse 7. Or who will descend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Now let me tell you what that means. It's, from, it's a quote from Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 14. Though the passages seem difficult, they're basically saying this. Just as Moses had said that there was no need for anybody to go up to heaven to bring down the law, so it's true that no one needs to go up to heaven to bring the Messiah down. In other words, the law had already come down and been given, and now the Messiah had already come down and died for us and rose from the dead. And just as Moses has said, there was no need for anybody to go across the sea to find the law, because they had the law, so no one needs to search the depths to find the Messiah. He's right there. Right? You don't have to go on a big search. He's right there. In fact, finding the Messiah is way less complicated than having to go on some search across the ocean. What does it say? The word is near you. Everybody say near. Near. Who's the word? Jesus Christ. And what's the word about him? It's the gospel. So the gospel about him is near you. It's staring you in the face. What is it? It's in your mouth. And it's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. Verse 8. Now just like in Moses' day, the word of God was very accessible. accessible. It was taught in synagogues everywhere. Every Sabbath. So now the Lord himself is very accessible. The word of faith includes the whole message of the gospel with its glorious tidings that Christ has come down from heaven and the resurrection which tells us that he has come up from the grave. Amen. He's come down and he's gotten back up. Amen. Uh, They only have to believe in their heart. All right. Verse 9, we all know this one, that if you confess with your mouth, everybody say this with me, that if you confess with your mouth, read it with me, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, say it loud, you will be saved. Amen. Isn't that fun? I love quoting that. This famous passage focuses on the deity of Christ. He was and is Lord. If you say with your mouth, confess with your mouth, he is Lord. And he was indisputably raised from the dead. He was seen. He is risen, was the confession of the early Christian. And everybody knew it was so. Read 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection, New Testament chapter. And then he says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, says Paul. The gospel appeal is primarily to the heart rather than to the head. God does not look for primarily intellectual assent to dogma, but for personal 
commitment to Jesus as the Lord of your life. I was out with a group of people eating a, a couple of months ago. And I happened to be across the table from a, a, a guy. I'm going to say he's probably in his uh, mid-40s. And he was a, a friend of one of my family members. And he was asking me a bunch of really, really knowledgeable theological questions. And he could quote the Bible this way, that, and upside down. And he knew, he, he, listen, he understood Calvinism. He understood Arminianism. He was dealing with some red meat theological issues, talking to me about them very fluently. But I couldn't help but note something. He was living in fornication with somebody. Shacking up. And so I'm going, how can you know all this? And, and live with someone and not even be married to them. When the word, if you know the word of God so well, then you clearly know the word fornication. Are you all with me? See, the word fornication has been lost on the body of Christ to a great deal these days. In case you didn't know that, let me inform you. I've had people look me in the eye right in this altar and say to me, oh, well, we love each other, so it's okay with God. We're, we're living together. But, or, or, or God told us we were married. Oh, really? Really? And I wonder when that same voice is going to tell you to walk your separate ways without a commitment. And so here you had... I had this guy across from me, and, and I was aware. It, it was just this perfect example because he was very smart, and he understood a lot of theology, but it was all intellectual head knowledge. There was no heart involvement at all. Are you with me? And there's a lot of people in churches all over the nation every week who will say, oh, yeah, I'm a believer. Oh, yeah, hallelujah, kumbaya, praise the Lord. Isn't God good? But, but then they go off and they're living in sin during the week. And, and you got to go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Now, I'm not talking about messing up every once in a while. Please don't get me wrong. I'm talking about practicing a sinful lifestyle. Where you know what you're living is against the Scripture. If you're breaking the Scripture, you're breaking God's Word. And, and you got to get right. But this man, and I want to say to him, Wow, I'm so impressed with your intellectual theological knowledge, but, but how do you square all that with this? And before long, he was throwing out a few choice cuss words as well, and then I realized, well, you know what? You can have all kinds of head knowledge, but nothing has happened here. Listen, you must be born again. That means your nature is changed. Are you there? I hear some of you thinking, well, I regret coming tonight, man. I thought we were going to, but I want you to listen. Please hear me. Please hear me. I'm not condemning anybody, but it's the pulpit's fault because so many pulpits anymore, they don't preach the word of God. They're, they're motivational seminars. You might as well be in a gym working out. You got it going on, guy. You're, you're, you're a success waiting to happen. Um, God's going to bless you with this and bless you with that. And there's no preaching on the cross, the need to repent, on having to crucify your flesh, on walking in the spirit. There's no preaching on that. No, no. It's the Americanized success gospel. And it's killing the church. It's killing the church. Because you've got a bunch of anemic Christians out there. Oh, yeah, they believe in Jesus, but they're anemic. They're They're defeated. They're confused. They're living in the flesh. 
I could go on, but I got to teach Romans 10. But see, here's the deal. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, says Paul. Believe in your heart. Believe in your heart. It's a heart issue. Rather than the head, God does not look for primarily intellectual assent to dogma, but for personal commitment to Jesus as Lord. In Hebrew thought, the heart comprised the whole man. The Savior says Paul is very accessible. He must be believed on in the heart and confessed with the mouth. And that's the very thing the Jews refuse to do. And they refuse to do it to this day. They will not confess the deity of Jesus. Not very many of them. Some will, but most won't. That's why I tell you, and this is free as well. This is not in the notes. But uh, a lot of Christians listen to conservative talk radio. You do. Uh, and I could name them. You know, Dennis Prager, Mike, Mark Levin, Sean Hannity. I could go through the list of conservative radio hosts who have very, very uh, successful, popular programs on the radio. And we listen to them all the time. But you've got to be careful. Because a couple of them are, are Jewish men. And what you've got to watch out for, and, and not just them. But the other radio hosts, because they're conservative in their politics, but they're not conservative in their lifestyle. And I heard one of them, Dennis Prager, who I respect. He says a lot of good things. I'm not trying to turn you away from listening to him. But I heard him say, and he has said it more than once in my earshot, I heard it myself. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe that he died for me. I don't believe that I have to turn to him. Um, I believe we achieve heaven by our works. That's exactly what he said. Now, you know who we're hearing there? We're hearing Moses. We're hearing old covenant. And a lot of Christians hear that and they go, well, I'm confused because this really nice man who is really smart, he's written his own Bible commentary. Um, he doesn't believe in my Savior. Could I be wrong? No, you're not wrong. There's a veil over the eyes of most Jewish people. It's coming off one day, but right now it's there. So you've got to be careful. Conservative politics, great. But watch out when they go religious because they may steer you wrong. That's free. That may have been for one person. All right. Um, they won't confess the deity of Jesus, most of them. Now, why is this important? Paul continues, because it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Now, there's a change in the order of heart and mouth. In the verses above, in verse 9, he begins with the mouth and ends with the heart. But here he begins with the heart, ends with the mouth. Verse 10, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you confess that you are saved. So now he's given us the correct order of events. The pathway to your salvation begins with your heart. There's a change in the order of heart and mouth. Because in verse 9, Paul is following Moses' order. And in verse 10, he's following the order of experience. Believing comes before confessing. The confessing here is not a legalistic requirement it's a natural consequence of true faith. Jesus said what? Out of the abundance of your what? Heart. What speaks? Your mouth. So what happens first? 
your heart, your heart. Something is going on in your heart and the mouth is the gateway for what is in the heart. W.E. Vine says, the actual order is now given. Faith first, then confession. Absence of confession betrays a lack of faith. If I believe it, I'm going to say it. Amen? Can we try this? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. How many of you say, that came out of my heart. I fully believe it. Amen? That's how you were saved. Another commentator says, the beginning of the Christian life has two sides. Internally, it's the change of heart, which faith implies. This leads to righteousness, the position of acceptance before God. Externally, it implies confession of Christ crucified. Amen. So first the heart, then the mouth. Now next comes great news, and I love this. Anyone and everyone can be saved. Anyone and everyone can be saved. Verses 11 to 13, as the scripture says, read it with me, everybody, anyone. Now, in the Greek, that means anyone, okay? Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses how many? All who call on him. Everyone who calls, how many? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I got a phone call tonight on, on the air and it was a guy saying, I'm confused about predestination because I'm having a conflict with a friend who believes in predestination. Now that means they're a Calvinist. And let me tell you what they believe that God chose some people to be saved, predestined them. And he chose some to not be saved. They weren't predestined. So if you're saved tonight, it was because God predestined you. And you really had no choice because irresistible grace is going to see to it that you're saved. And if you are not saved and you die not saved, God simply had never chosen you. Now, he said, well, so tell me what you think about that. Because me and my friend, we're really locking horns here. I said, well, I think your friend is wrong. Because there's too many whosoever's. There's too many whosoever's. Uh, just take, and I said, just take Romans 10. There's several whosoever's. Look at them all. Anyone, all, everyone. That's all inclusive. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. So here's where I land. Uh, let's say you got a stadium full of people. Here's Billy Graham up there preaching the gospel. He quotes John 3:16. 50,000 people in that stadium hear it. Let's say uh, half of them are lost. 25,000 of them don't know God, don't know Christ. And they hear, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. They hear it. They have a choice. Right then, do I repent and place my faith in him or do I walk away? I do not believe that those 25,000, some of them have been picked by God to be saved, and some of them have been picked by God to go to hell forever. Because to me, that doesn't square with the character of God. Okay? Whosoever. So I believe out of that crowd of 25,000, whosoever amongst them says, I'm going to repent and I'm going to turn to Christ. And when they do, they're saved. 
And that's when predestination kicks in. Because Romans 8, 29 says, he predestined the believer to be conformed to the image of his son. Not predestined the believer to be saved. He predestined whoever does come to him that everything and anything, good, bad, and ugly, become the needle and thread in the hands of God to weave into you and me the character of Christ. So I have been predestined to be conformed to his image. But when it comes to salvation, whosoever, whosoever, anyone, all, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for his goodness? Amen. So we're getting towards the end here. Anybody can call out. Jew or Gentile, the young and the old, the bond and the free, the rich and the poor, the cultured and the crude, the down and outer, or the up and outer. Anyone can call. Confessing the name, confessing Jesus as Lord gives personal expression and public exposure to the fact that Jesus saves. Now next comes a strong call to evangelistic work. He says in verses 14 to 15, this has to do with us, church. This has to do with turning point. Here is one of our callings. You, you do know that our little slogan is inreach, outreach, upreach. All right? Outreach is right here. We're all about outreach. Okay? Why? Because of this right here. How then can they call, that is the lost, on the one they've not believed in? They can't. And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? You can't. And how can they hear without somebody preaching to them? They can't. And how can they preach unless they are sent? They won't. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Simply put, to be saved, you got to hear the good news. For that to happen, there has to be a witness. The word for preacher is simple. It's a herald or a pro proclaimer. How will they believe if they don't hear the gospel from a witness? And how will there be a witness unless one is sent? Amen? This is why Jesus told his followers, go. So what's the first word in the Great Commission? Say it again. He didn't say stay. He didn't say sit around, sit, soak, and sour. What's the first word in the Great Commission? Go. Go and do what? Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So what did he say? Go, make disciples, baptize them in water, and teach them what I taught you. That is what we're about. You want to know what Turning Point is here for? This is one of the, this is one of the core crux principles for which we are here. In reach, building Christ in you. Outreach, reaching people with Christ. Upreach, teaching people to come into the presence of Christ. We're all about in reach, outreach, upreach. Now next, Paul returns to the sad fact that occupies his mind all through these chapters. The Jew has rejected Christ as Savior. Now, he now shows how unrelenting Jewish disbelief in Jesus really is. Let's just let Paul talk to us here. Verse 16, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? 
Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Yes, they heard audibly. Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. But they didn't respond. Paul maintains that Jewish unbelief in Christ is unreasonable on two counts. First, they could believe. They could believe. So will you note with me, it wasn't a matter of being chosen to be saved or not. There's a could. And could is a word about your will. You could. That's a will word. Yet Paul says they have not obeyed the gospel. And Paul mourns with Isaiah over the unreasonable unbelief of his people. For the gospel is not a new thing. It's rooted and grounded firmly in the Old Testament. The supreme tragedy, by the way, let me quote a verse to you quickly. Uh, the end of Hebrews 11, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. What is that talking about? All right? Who died in faith? The Old Testament saints. But they didn't receive the promise. What promise? They didn't get to see Messiah come. But they died in faith. So when they died in faith, their souls went to the good part of Hades. And there they waited for the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he took them out of the good part of Hades, also known as Abraham's bosom, and carried them into heaven. He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. All right? These all died in faith. They died in faith in what? What did they die in faith? What were they looking to? They full well knew that Messiah had been promised. And they died in faith, believing in the Messiah that had not yet come. And that's what saved them. Are you there? So Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection not only reached into the future, whosoever believes on him will be saved, but it reached back to the past. It was retroactive. His shed blood was retroactive. Those who died in faith, believing Messiah would come, we just didn't live long enough to see it. It saved them because they died in faith in the Messiah, though he had not yet arrived. All right. So the Jew had listened. He knew the prophecies, but he didn't believe. So they could believe. And then the second thing, they should believe. The Gentiles had accepted the gospel, Paul argues. And this fact alone should arouse the Jewish conscience. Or how about some jealousy? How about some good old-fashioned jealousy? What are these Gentiles doing getting saved when I was the one that received the covenant promise? Paul next cites Moses and Isaiah as witnesses that the Hebrew scriptures themselves foretold the conversion of us, the Gentiles. First, Moses. Here's Moses. Verse 19, Romans 10. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. That's the Gentile nation, us. The Jews should believe, if for no other reason, out of sheer jealousy of the fact that the Gentiles have stolen, as it were, their blessing. Next, he quotes Isaiah. 
verse 20, and Isaiah boldly says, God talking first person through him, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. (laughs) How many of you are glad that's you? Again, here we have the sovereignty of God at work. The rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people caused God to turn to the Gentiles. And the Jews to this day continue in their disobedience. Verse 21, concerning Israel, God says, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The word disobedient means to refuse to be persuaded. How many of you have teenagers? (laughs) How many of you can say, that's a good definition of disobedience. Refuse to be persuaded. So then, closing out tonight. So far then, as God's present dealings with Israel are concerned, he's speaking to the individual Jew. He's offering him salvation of the same basis uh, as the Gentiles. Gentiles are pressing into the kingdom while very few Jews pay any heed to the gospel call at all as of today. They will, but that's the way it stands today. That's chapter 10. Amen. Isn't that good stuff? Isn't that good stuff? Let's stand up together, can we? And there's my friend back there. Amen. God bless you. Um, Brendan's not here. Does anybody have a question? Because I would be happy to ask, uh, answer a question or two. All right? Because we're doing great on time. It's not even eight yet. So uh, right back here, Valerie, I hate to, let me get a man who can run so you don't have to do this. Run that microphone. Here you go. Right over there. There you go. You didn't know you'd be doing this tonight, did you? You've been drafted. All right, let's get a couple of questions about this tonight. Hello, I had a question on uh, Matthew 28, 19, 20, where it says, go therefore and make disciples. Does the word disciples, does that refer maybe to make Christians? Disciples, um, the Greek word actually means a, a, a martyr. Um, it's talking about, notice, it's not just uh, talking about somebody who says, I believe in Christ and they get saved. But Jesus was big on what he did. He took men, like he called them off the, the, out of their boats and from the seashore. And what did he do? They believed on him, but he took it way further than that. He discipled them, which is to teach them. As far as we go, you know, post-cross, post-resurrection, living in the times of the Gentiles, um, it has to do with teaching them what he taught us teaching them how to walk it, talk it, live it, how to walk in victory, how to reach others, how to be fruitful, disciple them. And it's, it's much bigger and broader than just getting saved, which is an incredible, wonderful thing. But Jesus said, go and make disciples. Getting them saved was understood, but make disciples out of the ones that are saved. And you, you look at the, the condition of the Western church world, all right? I don't know how much you look at it or read about it. But it's loaded with people that are anything but discipled. Um, I, I'm going to brag on our church a minute. Um, not on me, but on what we do here. We're discipling people. We're discipling men. We're discipling women. We got man church. We've got kingdom women. We got kingdom men. 
we're discipling people where they go through nine, ten months of intense training, reading many different books. When, when they get finished with the discipleship training we give them, um, they get commissioned. I mean, it's a big deal. We have a celebration. They're all given a sword to represent. Now you're in the, you're in the battle and you're going to do the kingdom of the devil some damage because they've been discipled. So it's not just a matter of getting people saved, but you got to follow up and disciple them. And that's what he's talking about. All right. Anybody else? Any other question? How are they saved? Okay. How are they saved? Now, Paul talks about that in Romans one. There's two witnesses and that is nature and your conscience. Paul says in Romans 1, um, he made the things we can see to teach us about things we cannot see. Psalms 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day to day they utter speech. Night after night they show knowledge. What is the psalmist telling us? They preach. They talk. Now it's not the same as hearing the gospel. Uh, It's not, you know, you can have the testimony of nature. This happened to my dad. I witnessed to my dad for years. And my dad was an intellectual. He really was. He was in the genius group, Mensa, that club where your IQ has to be way out there. That was my dad. But now he said to me, Jeff, I just can't comprehend the atonement. That was my dad's analytical brain. But one day I'm sitting there, I'll never forget, I was eating cream of wheat at the table for breakfast. And I'm sitting there and my dad went out back and he came back in and he goes, you know what? He said, there's no way this just happened. I said, what are you talking about, dad? He said, I was just watching a squirrel in the tree. And it occurred to me, there's no way this just poof came to be by evolution. I choked on my cream of wheat. Okay. But now, then I was able to say, let me talk to you about the gospel again. So, and I did, and I was able to pray with my dad and lead him to Christ. But here's the deal. Um, There's the testimony of nature and there's the testimony of your conscience. God gave everybody a conscience. And Paul in Romans 1 talks about the Gentile, Romans 1 and 2. He talks about the Gentiles who don't know God, but they have a sense of right and wrong. And their conscience... um, lets them off the hook or puts them on the hook based on guilt or no guilt for their actions. So that is one of God's mouthpieces. But here's what I believe. If you have that testimony of nature or the testimony of your conscience and you say, I did this, God, if there's a God, show me. And he will get somebody to you with the gospel I guarantee you he will get somebody to you with the gospel. If he has to send an angel, he'll get somebody to you with the gospel. And that's how you are born again, by listening to the gospel of Christ. But there's those two things, preaching and witnessing every day to the entire world. The testimony of nature and the conscience that God put in every one of us. Read Romans 1, right around verse 18 through 25, somewhere in there. All right? Does that help? All right. Anyone else? So. Oh, okay. (laughs) 
So bringing back to the uh, question and topic on uh, predestination, right? Yeah. So, and I know that God gives us the free will to choose him, right? Yes. But also in Ephesians 1, 5 through 11, it talks about um, uh, that we have the predestination being adopted as sons. Like, what, do you, what do you say to that part? Okay, what I say to that is, yes. Um, when you understand, especially if you read the Pauline epistles, that, and what I mean by that is the epistles written by Paul. He will talk about the plan of salvation was hatched amongst the Godhead before time began. Okay? So before God said, let there be light, before God created the worlds, the plan of salvation had already been decided amongst God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now when it was decided, certain things were predestined. Certain things were, you know, David said, you have, you've set the table before me in the presence of my enemies. Let's say I invite you to a party. Everybody in here to a party. I give all of you invitations tonight. Okay. I give you the date. I give you the time. And some of you look at it and you go, yeah, I'm invited, but no thanks. Others of you go, I'm going. Now, for those who say I'm going, I've already got a plan. I've got an event predestined for you when you arrive. We're going to have steak. We're going to have games to play. We're going to have baked potatoes. We're going to have apple pie and cherry pie and chocolate cream pie. And I have all of this predestined. If you accept the invitation, I already know what I'm going to give you. But you've got to accept the invitation. If you don't, you miss it all. But if you accept it, have I got a plan for you? Right? So I interpret Ephesians the same way. Yes, he did predestine. But that doesn't mean he picked you and not another. That's saying those who do come to him, here's what I have planned for them. On earth is to be conformed to the image of his son. But after earth, oh, the banqueting table. It's called the marriage supper of the lamb. And all of that is planned if you accept the invitation. Does that help? All right. All right, that's good stuff. I could take questions all night. I've been taking questions all day. I've been taking questions all week, but it's good stuff. I so appreciate it. Love all of you. Let me just pray for you as we get ready to go. Oh, there's one more? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't see it. One more, and this will be the last one. Where are you? Oh, way back there. Okay, Vance. Yes, I was. Uh, I heard you tonight. I think it was on the To Every Man an Answer. I think you said that the rapture could happen at any time. I might have misunderstood you, but I thought you said that. That is what I said. Okay. Could you explain that a little bit more? That the rapture could happen at any time? Well, simply put, there's no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the rapture to happen. Okay? There's no, he could come right now like a thief in the night. Boom. And we're out. 
In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trump, the dead in Christ will rise first. We're not, there's no prophecy standing in the way of that happening at any time. Okay? But the second coming, that's not true. The second advent, the whole seven-year great tribulation period that we find in the book of Revelation, 21 judgments in all, seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments, all worse than the one before. And after those are done, you find yourself at the war of Armageddon, okay? Happening in the valley of Megiddo. And kings of the east are involved, the combined forces of the Antichrist are involved, and Jesus uh, predicted in other parts in the Bible that if he didn't come and intervene, no flesh should be saved. All kinds of prophecies need to happen before that comes, but the rapture, anytime. Could happen right now. Does that help? Yeah, I did say that. That's what I believe. I don't know where you are with that. But you know what? If I'm wrong and you're right, we're still going. Right. I mean, and if I'm right and you're wrong, you're still going. All right? Father, bless the people. I thank you for this wonderful time of Bible study on Wednesday nights. Uh, bless us, Lord, and carry us. And may your face shine upon us. Lord, help us to be ready for that day and that moment when the trumpet blows. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.